Good morning, everyone. Happy Advent. Glad some of you made it through all the storms and the uh, trees everywhere. Quite a, uh, quite, a, quite a storm last night. I was in it, but that's a story for uh, another time. It's been a minute since I last preached at Mosaic, so I will give my usual disclaimer uh, for those of you who don't know me or haven't heard me before. My name is Grant, um, Old Grant. Not to be confused with Grant Mullins, who is still new Grant in my eyes, despite being part of this community for a decade now and several years, my uh, elder. Anyway, I'm old Grant, and old Grant has a bad memory and a wandering mind, so for the sake of time and clarity, I try to write everything down. Uh, that way, I will be sure to land this plane in a reasonable amount of time and at the right airport. So to confirm the date from which we're departing this morning, this is the second week of that funny little season between Halloween and Christmas where they once again try to sell us candy, uh, this time under the guise of a liturgical calendar instead of an actual holiday. Uh, this calendar is all that most people know about Advent, and instead of a penitential season of fasting, the general population instead consumes large amounts of chocolate and alcohol. But if you were wondering if we are all just a bunch of hypocrites here at Mosaic, I would like to make it known that the annual classy Christmas cocktail party happened before Advent, so we're, so we're, all, we're all good. It was still Thanksgiving time. But growing up in a low church tradition that was suspicious of a big T tradition, I don't think I ever heard the word Advent until I went to college. Uh, but the older I get, the more appropriate this season of waiting starts to feel. And not just the anticipation of a child, my child, waiting to open presents on Christmas morning. I mean, I still feel that level of anticipation, but increasingly I resonate with the tension of Advent, the tension of living in the time between times, between Christ's first coming and his second coming, experiencing the tension that exists for us now in the age of his church, caught between the incarnation and the consummation of all history. Following the age of the Old Testament prophets was 400 years of silence. Uh, that's the gap between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years, the Jews tensely waited the coming of the Messiah who would end the exile they still experience in their own land, living under the oppression of both the Romans and, as Paul put it, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We celebrate Christmas as the resolution of this tension. The Son of God was born into this broken world and in order to mend it, to establish justice and set the captives free from sin and death, to put all that is wrong to rights again. And he did. All those prophecies from Genesis to Malachi were fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why we're here this morning. But we still experience exile. We still experience isolation from God, from each other, and from our own selves. Ironically, many experience the sense of exile most acutely at Christmas. The ultimate power of sin and death is broken, but it is not eradicated. The movement of heaven toward earth has begun, but it is not complete. The kingdom of God has come, but it is also still coming. This is the tension of the already but not yet between Christ's first advent and his second advent. And this tension has been building for 2,000 years now, which leads us to our text this morning and might explain why it is the epistle reading for this second week of Advent. 
So if you will, please turn or type to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 14, and stand for the reading of Scripture. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 14. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze, and the earth and every deed done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be dissolved in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and see it is coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the celestial bodies will melt into heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, where righteousness truly dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, not the uh, most festive passage, is it? Not exactly silent night. Uh, We're talking about the day of the Lord, a day of wrath, a day of fire, a day of destruction, and it's intense. This second advent isn't going to be calm, but it will be bright. That heavenly peace we sing about is the peace after hurricanes, or uh, what we experienced last night in a smaller, smaller sense. And yet, the promise of the parousia, the the Greek word advent is based on, the promise is not merely one of destruction, but of recreation. When Jesus comes again, a new heaven and a new earth will follow in his wake. At this point in the year, kids from 1 to 92 are looking forward to a Christmas vacation, but what Peter is describing is more of a Christmas apocalypse. Instead of a relaxing sleigh ride, he's going for a new amateur recreational saucer sled land speed record. And reading this text feels like sailing down a hill with nothing between the ground and your brains but a piece of government plastic. Like I said earlier, Advent is intense. It's supposed to be. And you might be wondering why I'm preaching on such an intense passage during this festive season because it's kind of a buzzkill and it doesn't say anything about baby Jesus. And part of that is the context. Tradition dates this book at the end of Peter's life, probably while he is imprisoned in Rome, awaiting a martyr's death that seemed imminent. This letter is his farewell address. We might look around today and think the world is on fire and Orthodox Christianity is under attack, but compared to 8064, when the Emperor Nero was literally throwing Christians to the lions in the arena and using them as human torches to eliminate his garden parties, Uh, It's like equating the level of destruction in Home Alone to Oppenheimer. It's pretty tense. And the church was very eager for Jesus to return. And that's why this passage was chosen as part of the lectionary readings for Advent, because it speaks to the need, the longing we feel for rescue and for restoration, for a return to Eden. This sense of longing is echoed by God's people across time and across the pages of Scripture, from our first parents in the garden, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to prophets, to Peter, and to us. Echoed over and over, down through the centuries. 
longing for a new day, the day of the Lord. Most people, the occasional Scrooge or Grinch being the exception that proves the rule, most people love Christmas, or at least the idea of Christmas. The snow, the lights, the peppermint-coated nostalgia of it all. But underneath the tinsel and the parties and the shopping is the ugly reality that instead of a Norman Rockwell, or if you're a 90s kid, a a Thomas Kincaid-style old-fashioned family Christmas, uh, what we actually experience is more of a full-blown, four-alarm holiday emergency. And nobody gets to leave. We are all in this together. So we have war in Ukraine, war in Palestine, famine across sub-Saharan Africa, And that's nothing to say of the minor but exhausting interpersonal conflicts we all experience with family and colleagues and strangers on the internet. Uh, We all just seem to get sucked into this every year. By the time December 25th finally arrives, you may resonate more with Ellen Griswold's truth that I don't know what to say except it's Christmas and we're all in misery. (laughs) And a month from now, it'll all be over and you'll be packing up your holiday wishes along with your nativity set and getting back to that grind Resolve that somehow you will make 2024 better than 2023. And on it goes, year after year, until one year it will be your last Christmas, and then you die. Serious, Clark? Yeah. Serious as a heart attack. Serious as the coming of the day of God. I admit I'm getting a little dark, but our passage is a little dark. It's downright apocalyptic. And maybe it's because I'm approaching middle age and turning into a bit of a curmudgeon, but I long for a new day. I think most of us do if we're really honest with ourselves. Life is pretty good for most 21st century Americans compared to just about everyone else who has ever set foot on this earth. It's pretty much Christmas every day, at least by material standards. But it's not enough, is it? It doesn't matter how successful you are, how packed your calendar is, how healthy, wealthy, or wise you become, it's still not enough. And it shouldn't be. Because we are made for more. More than power and pleasure and financial security. More than the American dream can ever offer. We like to quote C.S. Lewis a lot around here, with good reason. Man was a a genius. Uh, But perhaps his most quoted line is this from Mere Christianity. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Let me read that again with a a seasonal twist. Probably Christmas presents were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. That's oddly comforting as a parent. Uh, On Christmas morning, the gifts we give our children should not satisfy their desires, but rather whet their appetites for the promise of a greater gift, a gift that this earth can never provide. I long for that greater gift. I long for the promises of Scripture to be fulfilled, for the tension of Advent to be resolved. I long for a day when I no longer fail to measure up to my own expectations, a day when my life is characterized by faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These are the qualities Peter outlines in chapter 1 of this letter, 
qualities that will keep me from being ineffective and unproductive in my relationship with Jesus. Qualities that will enable me to participate in God's own nature as I become fully human the way that Jesus Christ is fully human. That is the day that I long for. And yet this is who God says I already am, who I have been since I was baptized into Christ many years ago, even if I have rarely caught glimpses of this reality since that day. Does anyone find that confusing? I do. But if the Apostle Paul couldn't figure out this dual reality of flesh and spirit existing as both sinner and saint, I doubt you or I will figure it out either. Uh, We're in good company. But this internal tension in the individual life of a believer is just a reflection of the tension of cosmic history that Advent celebrates. Christ has come, and yet he is still coming. Christmas is coming, and yet it already came 2,000 years ago. The day of the Lord is somehow both past, present, and future. But I think that's, it's the future part that's hardest to hang on to. I mean, that's why we're all here this morning, right? I mean, it's that, that's the reason the church exists. This promise that the word became flesh, that God is real, and, we, and he is really present among us, that he created this universe, and that he is going to fix this mess we find ourselves in, a mess that we are both born into and that we perpetuate, that he will put all things to rights in the end, including the wrongs within us. The promise of a new day in a new world. Otherwise, all these Christmas songs are just whistling in the dark. A desperate but ultimately futile attempt to manufacture some sense of meaning and hope in our otherwise pointless lives. Humbug, indeed. Chris and I taught Sunday school last week, uh, and I know Jonathan preached on an equally holly jolly passage from Isaiah 64. Uh, So if you weren't here for that, uh, spoiler, Isaiah says that all I, I'm a good person language, that's pretty much used tampons in the eyes of a holy God. Uh, It's extremely graphic if you're into uh, uh, Hebrew. I love the imagery of verse 6. We all wither like a leaf, and our sins carry us away like the wind. Anyway, we were making Advent calendars with the kids, and I was trying to explain to myself, not just them, the two, well, three different ways we measure time as Christians. And if you've never tried to explain, if you ever tried this to six-year-olds or 26-year-olds or 66-year-olds, I mean, maybe you can sympathize uh, trying to explain the nature of time to anyone. But the first way is the calendar, the secular calendar we're all familiar with, the one where Christmas starts somewhere in August. And this is the calendar we organize our lives around with school and work and federal holidays. This calendar is the slave driver we're all familiar with. Now the second calendar is the one we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. This is the liturgical calendar, which labels December 25th as the Feast of the Birth of Christ. The liturgical calendar is what the church has been following more or less since the 4th century to orient believers, followers of the way, around a schedule not defined by the orbit of the earth around the sun, but by the events of salvation history, especially the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. 
which is the hinge upon which all history turns. According to this calendar, the year is not ending. It just began. This is like mid-January. So we start with Advent, and then we proceed through Christmastide, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost, and so on. This is the calendar that set the rhythm for the life, for the life of the church for, for centuries, and it conflicts with the secular calendar here and there. And to that end, let me give my annual public service announcement that Christmas starts on December 25th and ends on January 6th, 12 days, not one, preferably celebrated with gifts of various flying mammals. Um, so don't take your lights down on New Year's Day. I sense that there are several hearts uh, the Holy Spirit is convicting this morning. Hopefully my wife's among them. The third calendar is the one that Peter is talking about in our passage this morning. That's, that's the one that's, that's tense. This is an eschatological calendar. It is not cyclical, but linear. It has a definite beginning and is progressing toward a definite end in a straight line, as hard as that line may be to trace. The Bible tells us how things began, how the incarnation of the Son of God is the climax of history, and how things will end when he returns, sort of. But it doesn't tell us how long that will take or what will happen in the meantime. I mean, it's been 2,000 years. But according to Peter, that's like two days in the mind of an eternal God who created time. With that calculus, the scientific consensus for the age of the universe would be like 105 years for God, one long human life. And I'm not going to get into the a debate over the cosmic history this morning, but maybe this text will put things in perspective for Christians who can't imagine our planet existing for 4 billion years, much less the universe existing for 14 billion years, as most astronomers believe. But I don't think Peter is trying to give some sort of astronomical timetable. The ancient Near Eastern cultures that produced the books that compose our Bible were not particularly concerned with the scientific method. They didn't worry about measuring time in mathematical inf increments that would appease our modern sensibilities. They were concerned with the meaning of history, who was guiding it and how it would end. Our brief time on Earth, it, it makes us impatient. But I think the, uh, the point of 2 Peter 3.8 is that God's timetable is different than ours. He's not bound by the same eschatological clock. And for us humans, it's pretty much the same for what David said 3,000 years ago. I mean, our days are like grass. We flourish like a flower of the field, but when the wind comes, we're gone, and our place remembers us no more. And that brief time on this earth makes us impatient, but God does not suffer from our impatience. He's got the bigger picture in mind. And according to verse 9, that bigger picture is the conversion of our wayward human race. He's not twiddling his anthropomorphic thumbs up in heaven. I mean, we're talking about 2,000 years of patience. This is the God of the Exodus, Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Moses as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It is this patience that proves God's love for his creation as he waits for his children, that's us, to spread the good news so that all the world may come to repentance and experience the salvation of Jesus. The false teachers Peter is writing against scoffed at the claim that Jesus was coming back. I mean, it had been over 30 years after all. 
Uh, so Jesus' followers, and they must have made it all up, right? So they prefer to spend their time chasing money and sex without a thought to any future consequences for their actions. And judgment's such an ugly word. Peter says such scoffers will come in the last days, just as they did before the flood and before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the scoffers in our own last days look pretty much the same as those of past days. Still slaves to money and sex, still exploiting others however they can, and still sneer at the idea of a final judgment for their actions. And there's a logic to that worldly wisdom. I mean, if Christ isn't actually coming back, if that first advent was the only one, then yeah, you should do what feels good. I mean, if, you, if the stars of heaven are not going to be burned away, exposing all our deeds, then just live according to your own lights. If Jesus is just a moral example and not also a righteous judge, you should pursue pleasure and avoid pain, full stop. Like the teacher says in Ecclesiastes, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But if Peter is right, then following our own lights will ultimately lead us into utter darkness. And if we're going to accept Peter's authority, along with that of the other apostles and the eyewitnesses regarding the life of Jesus, we can't then turn around and reject the divine claims that Jesus made, claims that were vindicated by his sacrificial death and miraculous resurrection in fulfillment of all those prophecies. Those same prophecies that speak of rescue and restoration by the Messiah also speak of his judgment against evil as part of that rescue and restoration. And we all like the picture of sweet baby Jesus in the manger with shepherds and the angels and the cows. We're a bit uncomfortable with a later picture of Jesus riding a war horse with a robe dipped in blood and a sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the wicked and, I quote, tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That Jesus doesn't fit in our nativity set. Yet the Jesus in Luke 2 is the same Jesus in Revelation 19. In the Gospel of Luke, we see his first advent. In the Apocalypse of John, we see his second. When Peter says that a thousand years are like a day to God, he isn't saying that the second advent isn't imminent. Quite the contrary. Christ is coming, whether it takes 30 years or 2,000 years or longer. I'm not going to get into premillennialism this morning, but I will say this. We are living in the end times. And they began that first Christmas morning. Peter just wants the church of his day, and by extension the church of our day, to understand that God's perspective on time bears little relation to our own. The purpose of that second calendar, the liturgical calendar, is to teach us to balance the imminent with the eternal. The image I like to use for my own understanding is a spiral, like a, like a slinky but with a hinge in the middle. So it's not completely cyclical like Eastern religions that see time as, as a wheel that just turns forever without beginning or end. And there's no ultimate progress or resolution in that view. It's more like a hamster wheel, at least to me, and nobody can ever get off. The best you can hope for is to become detached to the point that you don't care and that you're just running in circles. And salvation in that model comes through escape, not redemption. There is no room for an eternal God that crashes into history in order to rescue and restore his creation. But with the spiral, 
combining the cyclical church calendar with the through line of salvation history, there are themes and events that echo across the centuries and millennia, but it's, it's all going somewhere. And the incarnation is the hinge in the middle of that spiral. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth allows history to make a hard right turn, redirecting the fall of creation toward a final redemption. I know you didn't think you were going to get a physics lecture this morning, but, and I don't want to get too far afield, but I'll, I'll say this. Christianity is a historical religion that stands or falls on the historical claims that it makes. And those historical claims have cosmic implications. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You can't tell Jesus to stay in his lane. He built the whole road. And, and all truth is God's truth, including the hard sciences. I digress. Another minefield is verse 9. We're not getting very far very fast. Verse 9 is a battleground, uh, classically, between Arminians and Calvinists. And I realize that most of you are not theology nerds, and I don't want to go down that rabbit trail this morning and debate the active versus the permissive will of God. Um, if you want to discuss how a sovereign God can desire for everyone to come to repentance while not necessarily achieving what he desires, we can take that offline. So let's move on to verse 10, because that's where things get really wild. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze, and the earth and every deed done in it will be laid bare. Now, your translation may read, the elements will be destroyed by fire, but that sounds like the dissolution of the material universe, uh, that God's just going to scrap this physical world and take us away to some disembodied heaven. And a lot of people, a lot of Christians, that's exactly what they think. I mean, that's certainly the popular conception of Christian eschatology, and it has been for a long time. But despite what Plato or Dante or Walt Disney or countless evangelical preachers have been saying for centuries, the promise of Scripture is not that we will all fly away to float on clouds like ghosts playing harps for all eternity. I mean, that's, which is good. I mean, that's not appealing. Heaven, as we tend to think of it, is just a temporary stop on the road toward new creation. And that is uh, our final destination. As, as Tom Wright likes to say, heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. The creator is not going to give up on his creation any more than he did in Noah's day, when he cleansed the world by water, but did not utterly destroy it. In the final day of the Lord, the earth will once again, uh, once again be cleansed, but this time by fire. This day of the Lord imagery Peter is referencing it shows up all over the Old Testament. It's an archetype, of, a figural way of viewing history. You can think of little d, day of the Lord, as an archetype that applies to a whole series of catastrophic events in salvation history. So the flood narrative, the exodus from Egypt, the fall of Babylon to the Persians, the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans, all day of the Lord. It's, it's like Advent. It points both backwards and forwards to a final, singular, big D-day, day of the Lord. But... Let me, let me use a more concrete illustration that may be easier to understand. I, I don't know how many of you have climbed mountains or at least driven to them, but the little D, Day of the Lord, is like the foothills that you don't really notice from a distance, and then suddenly you're there, 
and they, they seem huge when you're actually having to go over them. And sometimes those false summits, they trick you. I mean, after gasping your way to what you think is the top, suddenly you realize the true summit is still several hundred feet further up. You just couldn't see it from the bottom. And that can be demoralizing in the moment, but once you finally reach the top, the sense of accomplishment is that much sweeter because of the effort it took to get there. I mean, there are three base camps on the way up Mount Everest, each one harder to reach than the, than the last. I mean, only about half the climbers actually make it to the summit of Everest. They go out to climb. And these apocalyptic events in the Old Testament, they're like the base camps along the way, progressively more intense, but not final. The big D day of the Lord is like the summit of Everest. This is the day of which all other days were merely signposts. One of those little d signposts is Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4, which reads, All the stars in the sky will be dissolved, and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. This prophecy from Isaiah is the apocalyptic text that Peter is quoting in his description of the day of the Lord, which is why it sounds like it does. And Peter uses this Greek word, stoichia, which means element, but he's not talking about the periodic table. He's talking about the stars. It's, it's difficult for us to appreciate the power of this metaphor, I think, because in our electrified, light-polluted world, uh, we have never seen most of the stars in the sky. And I'm a pretty outdoorsy guy. I like to spend as much time as I can exploring the wilderness, but... Unless I go to the mountains out west, I rarely see more than a handful of stars. Uh, but every single time that I do manage to escape that electric glare of civilization, I mean, that endless field of, of twinkling light shining at me from across the universe, it produces a profound sense of awe that is hard to put into words, and I rarely experience in any, any other situation. And most of the time, we live as if the world revolves around us and our technological marvels that blot out the light of the stars perpetuate this delusion. I mean, the night sky in most places is not illuminated by the light of constellations trillions of miles away. If you happen to look up, you'll probably just see the light of planes and satellites circling a few thousand feet above us. Our heavens tend to declare the glory of man, not God. But the first time you get a clear view of the Milky Way, you will instantly realize how incredibly small you are in the grand scheme of planets and galaxies and light years. It is both humbling and liberating. The celestial bodies, they play a significant role throughout the Bible, and not just for the wise men who followed the Bethlehem star to find the Christ child. I mean, we talk a lot about Abraham and these amazing promises he received that kind of set the course for the rest of the Old Testament and Jesus fulfilling them, but it's hard to appreciate uh, this promise that God makes, the scope of it, to make Abraham's descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky if you've never seen them. For most of human history, and certainly for Isaiah and Peter, the majesty of the night sky, the heavens, was a constant reminder of the power of God and the cosmic order he has established. The idea of that starry host suddenly disappearing with a roar and a blaze of fire would be terrifying in a way that we can't understand since we spend our nights indoors surrounded by artificial light 
with our eyes glued to little glowing rectangles that serve up synthetic galaxies of information and entertainment. That's a soapbox for another day. As I was saying earlier, once you understand the prophetic and apocalyptic literature that Peter was immersed in as a first century Jew, it's easier to avoid falling into the platonic dualism that has plagued the church for centuries. Our God is a God of physicality, not just spirituality. He made us with physical bodies to inhabit a physical world, and the hope of Advent is that just as the Son of God took on physical form, perfecting it through his sinless life, sacrificial death, and bodily resurrection, we too will one day have resurrection bodies that are more physical than our present form, not less. I'm going to jump ahead here, way ahead, past Christmas, all the way to Easter. But the reason the resurrected Jesus could mysteriously pass through walls to join his, his disciples in a locked room is not because he was some kind of ghost just floating around. I mean, I think his resurrection body was actually more solid, more substantial, more real than the walls of the room. And the atoms of that wall just parted around him like the Israelites passing through the Red Sea. And yet even more mysteriously, the wounds on his hands and his feet remained, proving to Thomas that this man was still in fact the same person the disciples had been following for three years. All right, now we can back up the truck to Advent again. I'll show you where I'm going with this. Since the resurrected Christ is our pattern for the new creation, I think it's fair to say that what we do in this world will have lingering effects, for good or ill, in the next world when Christ returns, bringing heaven to earth so that God's space and our space will finally and fully overlap in a way that was foreshadowed in Eden and anticipated in the temple. We were created to care for this physical world as God's vice regents, but we failed in this ta that task pretty miserably. Since the fall, we have used and abused the natural world just like we have used and abused each other, sometimes quoting this very passage to justify the abuse. I mean, after all, if God's going to burn it all to the ground anyways, who cares how much carbon we pump into the atmosphere or the, how much flora and fauna we destroy in our greed? But God bound the fate of this world to the fate of humanity, which is why Paul says that creation groans as it waits for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. But if creation was groaning in the first century, I dare say it's screaming in the 21st century. And at the rate we're going, it may not be habitable in the 22nd century, certainly not for the least and the last among us. The scriptures are replete with warnings that God will judge us according to our treatment of the poor. And increasingly, poverty is the result of climate factors more than economic systems. Taking care of the planet and taking care of the poor are bound up together. You can't do one without also attending to the other. And I'm not, seeing, I'm not trying to say you need to go out and, and hug a tree, uh, but speaking from personal experience, it is very therapeutic. What I am saying is that how we treat this present creation will have an effect on the new creation that there is a continuity between them, just as there is a continuity between the crucified and resurrected body of Jesus. We are physical beings, and our physical actions in the physical universe have great and lasting significance. And the day of the Lord will reveal that significance when the earth and every deed done on it will be laid bare. 
And Peter is saying the same thing here that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. And I could preach a whole other sermon on that chapter, but we're out of time. So I will just give you some homework. Uh, this afternoon, go read 1 Corinthians 3 alongside 2 Peter 3 and meditate on what the day of the Lord will reveal about the life you have built and the works that we have created and what they will look like when it's all said and done and it's tested by fire. But I want to say this again because it's, it's important and it goes against a lot of popular evangelical theology. The consistent message throughout the Bible is that this apocalyptic fire is one that refines and renews. It is not a fire that consumes and destroys. I think God has given each of us the desire to be part of something that lasts, to create something that endures, to build a better world. More than that, though, I mean, like Lewis said, we long for another world. But another world does not mean that this one is going to be burned up like an old Christmas tree. No, this old Christmas tree is going to be transfigured, as Christ was, into one that is truly evergreen and will never die, a tree of life that brings healing to all the nations. Bernard of Clairvaux said that Advent ant anticipates the coming of Christ in three ways, and I've spent the bulk of our time on two of them, the incarnation at Bethlehem and the parousia when Christ will return and finish what he started that first Christmas morning. The third coming for which we are to prepare during Advent is for the reception of Christ in our own hearts. The band can come back up. And that is why many years ago, uh, at this point, we started ending the service with the table, with the Eucharist, with communion, because this is the climax. And this physical representation is a sign and a foretaste of the physical reality that is coming. So while they are playing and singing a song, take a moment to just think about this space, this physical space, these hundred-year-old boards and all of the trappings and events that have been here. This is, this is how God moves, through bread, through wine or juice in our case, but he has chosen to use the physical elements to communicate his presence and his power. So don't take it lightly. 